we are still in the prologue of the Gospel of John, those first few verses in chapter, most of actually of what's in chapter one or a good bit of it. We have noted a couple of times that John the Baptist has been mentioned and we've kind of skipped over him so that we could spend more time on a particular Sunday concentrating on the particular ministry of John the Baptist, which is what we're going to do this morning. So I'm going to be reading some snippets from the prologue. The first little bit is uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light and that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness uh, about the light. And then we can pick up again in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent uh, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. If you consider uh, all of what the Gospels have to say about John, one of the important things I think that we need to glean from this is that John and Jesus were actually related by blood to one another. We know that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, were relatives to one another. What their connection exactly was, we don't know for certain, but most likely they were cousins. And we know that when they were both pregnant, that Mary had gone to stay with Elizabeth for a time. And when she first came into the presence of Elizabeth, who was bearing John the Baptist, uh, that John leaped in Elizabeth's womb. Now, with all that said, we need to understand something. That even though they related to one another, they really didn't know each other. How do we know that? Because here in this very passage, John says in verses 31 and 33, I myself did not know him. So even though they were related to one another, I mean, we're used to this kind of thing where we have aunts and uncles and cousins and this, that, and the other and, and all of that. And very often we forget that we have a great deal of flexibility today to travel from here, there, and yonder in the blink of an eye. That there's, there's an aspect in which today families can be closer than they were in past years because we have this flexibility in our, in, in our capabilities as far as traveling goes. But very often families were greatly dispersed, which means very often they didn't really 
get together on these regular occasions and things like that where aunts and uncles and cousins and etc like most of us have experienced our life just never did really have that they didn't know each other nonetheless they both knew of the ministry that God had called them to particularly in other words, John was familiar with the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was familiar with the ministry of John. In verse 7, we find what we would call the commission of John from God. What was his commission? What was his purpose? Why did God send him forth? It was to bear witness about the light, which we understand now to be very clearly Jesus, that all might believe through him. Uh, there's a sense in which John continues that very ministry even today, because we read his testimony in Scripture. And so there's a sense in which John continues to bear that witness about the light uh, for even people today to see it and come to faith in Jesus Christ. John understood that he played an important role, but John understood at the same time that he played a very minor role in the overall picture compared to the role that Jesus played. He says in verse 115, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. When you read what the Gospels have to say, I think it's realistic to conclude that actually Elizabeth was pregnant with John before Mary was pregnant with Jesus. So we need to understand something that he's not saying here that, you know, he's, he's actually younger than Jesus in that sense. He understands that even though his ministry is vital and very important, that it is much lesser than the mission and the ministry of Jesus. He has come for one reason, and that is to exalt Christ, to share the gospel with people who would come to believe in him and to place their faith and their hope and their trust in him. He still continues through Scripture to speak to you and I today. Very clearly, uh, John the Baptist fulfills at least two very important Old Testament prophecies. As we read here, there's reference made to the one who cries out in the wilderness. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He's also a clear fulfillment of the very last verses in the Old Testament. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes 
And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Thus I come and smite the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's Malachi verse 5 and 6 in chapter 4. The last verses, as I've said, of the Old Testament itself. Jesus identifies John the Baptist as that one. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, for all the prophets and all the the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah to come. This is an example of something that we need to take note of, and that is sometimes Old Testament prophecies are meant to be taken literally, and sometimes there is a figurative aspect to them. See, this is one of the problems that John was confronted with, and that is this, is the expectation of the Jewish people was that Elijah himself would come, and he would prepare the way of the Lord. But Jesus says here basically that sometimes we want to literally interpret things that were meant to be taken in a non-literal sense. He is not saying that literally John the Baptist is the prophet Elijah, but he's saying that he is of the heart and the mind and the mission of Elijah. And I think this is just an example of that we have to realize that sometimes a lot of prophecy is meant to be taken absolutely literally, and sometimes there is prophecy that has a non-literal aspect to it. And we need to be acceptive of that. Very often, you and I are those same literalists, right? We believe that everything that's said in the Bible should be taken absolutely, totally, completely literal. But at the same time, we also know that Scripture is written in a lot of different genres, and one of those is poetry, and we understand that no one takes poetry absolutely literally, do we? John came and he came baptizing. Something that was not unknown to Jewish people. But the remarkable thing is this, is that John came baptizing Jews. During the intertestamental period, baptism was applied the Gentiles who converted to Judaism. That's where the roots of baptism lie. So what I'm telling is, even though baptism was known to the Jews, it was not a baptism of Jews. It was a baptism of Gentiles. It was a symbolic rite that was used to basically wash the Gentilism away from Gentile converts who were now considered to be Jews even though they were not physically born of the Jewish line, necessarily. 
Gentiles were considered to be unclean, and so baptism was, was utilized to wash away their uncleanness. But one of the most remarkable things about the ministry of John the Baptist is baptism had always been applied to Jewish to Gentile converts, but it was never applied to Jews. There is no example of that happening at all. So this baptism of Jewish people was an entirely new concept. The Jewish people considered themselves to be clean and Gentiles to be unclean. What John was saying to them in the practice of baptizing was essentially this. The Messiah is about to arrive, but you are not ready for him. You, the people of Israel, are unclean. And therefore, he called the Jews to submit to a ritual cleansing of baptism. A baptism that even Jesus himself submitted to. Jesus was baptized with water, just as John the Baptist was baptizing others. In fact, John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus. John knew his place. There is no doubt about that. He doesn't see himself as this great and holy and high person. He sees himself as this very lowly, almost meaningless person that God uses nonetheless. He is going to describe Jesus as one so great that he's not even worthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. We need to understand some things. To take care of another person's shoes or feet was not anything that anyone could be asked to do or commanded to do unless you were a slave. In other words, in the culture, to do something like that was considered to be one of the most demeaning and belittling and humiliating things that another person could do for anyone else. 
What John says is, I am not worthy of doing that which is only allowed to be done by the lowest of the slaves. In other words, John doesn't see himself as this great person. He sees himself in the light of Christ, and in the light of Christ, he sees himself as not being worthy. He sees himself as being lowly. He sees himself, in a sense, as being a slave. Commanding a slave to untie the strap of your sandal was intended to utterly and absolutely humiliate that person. To put that person in their place. The lowest point that any human being could possibly hold. And yet... We have our Lord Jesus washing the disciples' feet at that Last Supper. But even more than that, in other words, it was not too low for Jesus to go. To do that which only slaves would ever do. And one of the most amazing things about that that story in, in John chapter 13 is that none of the disciples offered to do that. Which tells you none of the disciples saw themselves in that position. But nonetheless our Lord Jesus did that. But we understand that he's done even far more than that. I know you've heard a lot about crucifixion over the years. A horrible, terrible, painful, demeaning way of death. And it was intended to be All of those things. It was intended to absolutely humiliate the one who endured it. And just remember this, that Jesus was also spit upon. And he was mocked. And he was scorned. And he was cursed at. And he was made fun of. John's head would eventually be delivered to Herod on a platter. John put his head on the chopping block for Jesus. I 
See, what we're saying here is this, is we see this both in the life of John the Baptist and the life of Jesus, just this great sense of humility. This perspective that nothing that could be asked of them by God the Father was too low for them to do. They embraced it. They did it. Paul writes to us, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let me ask you something. Do you think it's possible for God, for Christ, to, to ask you and I to, to do, do something that might be very humbling and humiliating to us? It'd be pretty arrogant for us to believe that God would never ask us to do anything like that when Christ himself and John the Baptist were very obviously put in that position. You see, our commissioning is not all that different from John the Baptist. If you're a believer, you've been commissioned by God. To carry forth the banner of Christ in whatever manner that God sends you forth in. I think one of the strongest witnesses to Christ as we live on the other side of man's attempt to, to carry forth the great commission that Jesus gives to all of us to go Therefore, into all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the most driving verses behind the whole mission movement. Uh, we could go with example after example of missionaries that have left families and left home and gone to distant places in the world and They've suffered utter and absolute humiliation, even very often to the point of death themselves by very uh, heinous means sometimes. That sort of thing. So let me ask you this. Uh, do you believe that it's... There's anything really that would be too much for Christ to ask of us. You'd have to say no. So the question is, is we, have we ever suffered humiliation because of our association with Jesus? Are there times in your life when you felt absolutely and utterly humiliated just simply because you were a Christian? 
That, my friends, is part of our calling. It's part of being who we are. It's part of being associated with Christ. Just as John the Baptist was. How far are we willing to go? What are our limitations? Where do we draw the lines? How often do we say to God, well, I'll go here, there, and yonder, and I'll do this, that, and the other, but don't you dare ask me to do that. Don't you you put me in that position where you expect me to share the gospel with this person I've known my whole lifetime, and they're a dirtbag, and I honestly don't want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I want to see them get what they've got coming to them. See, it's so easy for you and I to pick and choose the people that we think we need to minister to and evangelize. And how many times have you thought something like this, that I know so-and-so, I've known them for a long time, and they are a really great person. They look more like a Christian than a lot of the Christian people I know. And obviously they're much easier to talk with about these things. But very often the people who come to faith in Christ Jesus are the people that other people would think would be the last people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle is a very clear example of that. No one, no one, no one, not Paul, not anybody believed for one minute that what Paul would become the man that he became in Christ. In chapter 13 in, in, in 2 Corinthians, you read of all the things that Paul endured. And he endured humiliation at the hands of people over and over again. So why is it that today we almost have this mindset that Christ would never have us be humiliated for any reason? Most of you know that I was an unbeliever for a good bit, even into my adult life, into my 30s. I was an unbeliever. Raised up in church. Went to church kind of regularly, kind of semi-regularly for a good bit of my early life. But I didn't know Christ from Adam. You know, I knew all the stories, the Bible stories about Jesus and, and, and all of that. But let me tell you something. One of the things that spoke to my heart like nothing else were there were people that I knew who knew me very well who loved me enough to tell me what I needed to hear. Even though they were afraid to do that. They did not let their fears overcome their responsibility and duty to Christ Jesus. I had a reputation for being somewhat of a hard nose. I was pretty well educated in the place that I worked. I worked in the training center in 
Crystal River in the training department, the nuclear training department. I was the only person in the whole place that had a master's degree in science. Most of the guys I worked with didn't even have bachelor's degrees. I never understood it because I never thought I was all that smart. But, but when I talk with them, these are descriptions I get from other people is that Keith was this really, really smart guy. I never saw my way, myself that way. I still don't see myself that way at all. But what I'm telling you is they were willing to go to the person that in their own perspective was the most hard-nosed, anti-Christian fellow that they knew. I hope there are people like that in your life. I hope you've served that purpose in the lives of other people. Don't go picking and choosing the people that you think ought to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. That's not your job. What our job is, is to tell anybody and everybody that God puts in our path. The good news of the gospel. We're not responsible for the, how they receive it. We're not responsible for how they react to it. But we are responsible for going. Humbly going. Not going in an arrogant and prideful manner. But with the humility and the humbleness of our Lord Jesus and John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. Some of you might say that God has never surprised me, and I would challenge you with this idea that maybe he's never surprised you because you've never done anything that you might be surprised at. Like I said before, we share, in a sense, the same commission as John the Baptist. We're just supposed to go out. We're, we're the light. We're the light of the world. God's light. Some people very often would describe themselves as being a humble person. And just by doing that, they're telling you they're not humble. <laughs> it's very easy for people to look upon themselves and say, there's a humble person in this room, and there's a humble person in this city or in this world. It's got to be me. Let me tell you, if that's you, then you just are not there. Humility is not anything that we can ascribe to ourselves. Humility is only something that can be ascribed to us from other people. Period. If we believe we're humble, then we're not doing anything but being arrogant and prideful. We're in the midst of this COVID epidemic. It's, it's touching springs now a little bit. You know, we haven't really been affected that much by it. We've had a few people like Bucky and Maybell that came down with this stuff early on. 
Uh, it's a most amazing thing. I really believe that God has been here with us because we've almost been untouched by this stuff all the way up to now. We went for a whole year without it having hardly any impact on this congregation at all. And we've continued to do pretty much most things the same way that we've done them in the past. And you've heard me say this a number of times through all of this. That is that God has given us an opportunity here to show ourselves to be different. To that unbelieving world out there around us. They expect us to react to it exactly the same way that they do with utter and absolute panic. And one of the things that will surprise them in this is when we don't. When we understand that there's a God in heaven and his perfect will and purpose is being fulfilled in absolutely everything take, that takes place, and if his perfect will and purpose means me getting COVID, then let it be. God has foreordained absolutely everything that comes to pass. And if you get sick, you get sick because God determined at the very beginning of time that you would. The question is, what are you going to do with it when it happens? How are you going to react in the midst of that? Unfortunately, I think very often... Christian leadership today is responding to this not in a humble way, but sometimes in a prideful and arrogant way. For instance, recently, I'm not going to tell you who this is, most of you probably already know, but a very well-known evangelical preacher has basically refused from the very beginning to shut his church down. The doors have been open. In a place where it's illegal for them to be doing, at least according to the, the authorities, is illegal for them to be doing what they're doing. And he made this comment, if they throw me in jail, I will just start a prison ministry. Now let me tell you something. There's a part of me that wants to say, go bro. But let me encourage us to have a little different perspective on things. That, that's a believer, you, you know, uh, cheering a fellow believer on. But let me ask you something. Do you think that comment would have the same effect on unbelievers? Unbelievers would probably receive that as being very arrogant and very prideful. And you know what? It is because it is very arrogant and very prideful. And it's probably not going to win a single unbeliever to the fold. As a matter of fact, statements like that are probably going to turn people off even more than they were before.
I mean, our response to all of this should have particular characteristics to it, and one of those is that we respond to it through humility and humbleness, not pridefulness and arrogance, not looking out upon the world and saying to the world, you're just getting what you deserve. There's some truth to that, but at the same time, we should have this same thought all along, and that is what I deserve of myself. Only the fact that God has given me grace makes me any different than anybody else. Do you understand that if you want a humble heart, you have to wear that on the frontals of your forehead? I think one of the most disparaging things that, that, that I experience is this, is how little grace is spoken of in the church of Jesus Christ today. And what we're talking about here is absolutely, totally, completely unmerited favor. In other words, if you're saved, God saved you, but you did not deserve in any way, shape, or form to be saved. He, according to his own will and purpose, has granted you grace. And it's not because you're better than other people. It's not because you're more righteous than other people. It's because God is God and God could do what he wants to do with whoever he wants to do it, when he wants to do it, and he doesn't have to explain it to anybody. We need to be faithful to our calling. Just like John the Baptist was. And very often that calling is going to cost us. Sometimes it's going to cost what we consider to be a lot. It cost John his life. So how far are we willing to go? I love missionaries. I love foreign mission work. I wanted to be a missionary to Uganda. I hoped for that. I prayed for that for a time, but it became clear it wasn't going to happen. I have a high regard for those people. If you've never been on the foreign mission field on a short-term thing, you need to go. I mean, they live a hard life. Not all of them, but m many of them live a very difficult and hard life every day. They've given up all the comforts and things that we have here very often. Sadly, many of them do not feel very well supported by the people who sent them to where they went. I won't say that for the people that we support. Because we have always given every penny that we ever said we would give. We have never come short. Now, a few years ago, we did have to cut back. But we let them know it before we did it. And the people here took cuts before. 
because we began falling short of budget. So there was strength in us of being able to say to them, we're going to have to, we don't want to do it. We're, going to, we're just going to have to do this, but you need to understand something that we've taken cuts before we cut you. I just want to encourage us this morning to realize that look at what Michael and Cindy are doing. Look at what Joel and Stephanie Swanson are doing. Look at what Don and Clearly Cobb have done now for a long time. Look what Don Mountain and Merrill do. All of those ministries are worthwhile. All of those ministries are worthy of being supported. Personally, I wish we could do a whole lot more than we do. So give some thought to these things. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning.